Jesus has indeed rescued us. We are covered by his transforming blood. And because of that, we know that he doesn't leave us the way we are. He transforms us. He moves in us. And he covers us in his grace. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes these words to the church in Rome. Because Jesus has covered you, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then from Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, we read these words. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything... I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. How about that, huh? That was something, wasn't it? I sometimes kind of joke when we have like a big thing like that and say, oh, it's like this all the time. But you know what? If you're new here, it's like this all the time. I'm serious. It's like week after week, month after month. So I, I really want to praise the, the, the uh, Lord our God who gave the choir those voices and the um, unique willingness to share those. And that was very soak up on the solo. So well done. That was awesome. Um, <clears throat> one prefatory comment, which actually is a, is a guide to prayer. Um, yesterday, a handful, some of them up here, some of them not, of folks in our church went out to our REC Drive property and, and built a, a prayer, a little small prayer area for us. It's in the shape of a cross. It's got the Methodist cross flame. Can't miss it if you drive out there. And, and we're going to be anointing that and consecrating that in a, in a few weeks at an appropriate moment on a Sunday afternoon. But, but I would encourage you, you know, even on the way home to church, say, I've got to see what pastor's talking about. Go out there and see. There's wood chips, and it'll be real evident. There's, a, uh, there's corn behind it right now because that's what we're farming out there. But, but go out there. It's a great opportunity for us to begin praying about where it is that we're going. So the sermon today, it starts like this. It's always interesting what gets embedded in your mind and what does not. I remember a few weeks ago, um, my spouse asked me, hey, do you know somebody's number? And I said, yeah, it's 377-3873. She's like, how do you know that? Without looking at your Blackberry or your phone? I said, well, because that's Peg Pierce's number. And I've been calling Bob Lane since he, I was 10 years old, and that's where he lived. I can always remember that number, 377-3873. Give her a call. She's sometimes lonely. Give her a call there. No, I'm just... 
Great, Peg gets 300 calls this afternoon. But then it's also interesting what you don't remember. You know, I took about 25 years from, oh, off from calling that phone when, when Bob lived somewhere else and, 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 you know, I really didn't necessarily have a reason to call Peg. But then what's interesting is there's a phone number I call. It's, it's sad. I know my friend's phone number. But I do not know the phone number to the Iowa Conference of the United Methodist Church. I call that number every two weeks, and I cannot literally, you know, throw it off like that. It hasn't embedded itself in my mind. And I looked it up Friday just when I was, you know, completing this. I thought, well, is it a hard number to remember? And I'm like, it's not. So I don't think it's embedded itself in, its, in my mind. But it's also sometimes, you know, we embed other things in our mind. Don't, don't put this next slide up yet, but I'm going to show you a slide in a minute. I have this stuck in my mind, you know, because it came to me when I was in my 20s. Listen to this. I want to see if you can... Tell me where this is from. Some of you guys are going to have to do some pop culture here. Have you ever been to a friend's house to eat and the food just ain't no good? The macaroni soggy, the peas are mush, and the chicken tastes like wood. Anybody? Put the slide up. Let's see what we got here. Okay, that's from Rapper's Delight. Now, that song is 15 minutes long. But I can, you know, I'll be sitting at home and I'll say, you ever been to a friend's house to eat and the fr- food just ain't no good? The macaroni soggy, the peas are mush, and the chicken tastes like wood. And, and I know all 15 minutes of it. Why do I know? My, one of my daughters knows all. Why do I know this? Why do I, why is that embedded in my head? Now, I'm on the board of trustees at Iowa Wesleyan College. I graduated from the college. I went to many things at the college. Every week when we had chapel, they played a song at chapel called the Wesleyan Hymn. Do you think I know that song? No, but I can say, hotel, motel, holiday. You know, I can rap. And all I know... Is, is, is about the Wesleyan hymn is it ends with the words, Wesleyan, we love thee. And not only that, Pastor Keith can back me on this, there were two Iowa Wesleyan graduates beyond, uh, other than me in our first service this morning. They didn't know it either. But we sang it every week for four years. And at our graduations. But see, I think the fact of the matter is, though it's not a physical thing, I think we all have and important to us, in quotes, and important to us switch in our head, don't we? We have that switch that's like, what's important to us? And it clicks on when we need to remember something, or when we need to know something, and it's clicked off at other times. And I'll tell you that, if we have an important to us switch in our minds, we, the leadership of your church, the church council, and your pastors, aim to click it on. We aim to click it on in, in regards to our mission statement. So I'd, I'd like you to repeat after me. It'll be up on the screen. It's in your bulletins too. Just repeat after me. I'm not asking you to know it right yet. Just repeat after me. The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Now let's say it all together. The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That's only 18 words, okay? You know more words than that to one of your favorite songs. You know more words than that to some document that you're working at at work. And I want, and, and, and we aim, Pastor Keith and Vicki, myself, and the other leaders of the church, we aim to embed that in your mind. We aim to click that important to us switch so that it might be embedded in your heart, it might be in the works of your hand, and the mind. And this will not be a 12-week program. We're going to preach 12 sermons on it. But our prayer is that this will be the essence 
of First United Methodist Church, not a moment. So if you go to our 1914 puppet troop and you cut it through the middle, you'll see this oozing out of it. If you go to my United Methodist Women Bazaar next Saturday and you cut it, you'll see that oozing out of it. If you go up to the sanctuary choir and you cut them right through the middle, that's what oozes out because we desire to embed this in the culture of our church so much that no matter what you come into, no matter what you program or essence or, 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 or uh, issue that you come up against in, in the church, that is what you see. Now, I had an interesting experience about six weeks ago when this mission statement started to be socialized in the church. I was staying right out there between services, between 745 and 830. And one of you came up to me in Christian love and said, I read the mission statement of the church. And I was thinking, I'm so happy, so grateful. Thank you for doing that. And she says, they're not going to like it. They're just not going to like it. I'm like, pray tell, say more. She says to me, and she really was in Christian love, she says, Pastor Mike, do you know what transformation means? I said, I have some idea. Yeah, I have some idea. She says, it means change. I said, I'm aware. And then pointing at the 745 service and you guys at the same time, she says, they hate that. I'm shocked. <laughs> no, I understand that. There's some truth to that. You know, we don't always like change. I, some of you are around long ago. Remember when Coke changed its formula? Oh, my gosh. The sky was falling, right? Oh, my gosh. Coke has changed its formula. Okay, let's come a little bit closer to home. Some of you don't remember that. Remember when Cedar Rapids decided to close 2nd Avenue? How will we get home? You can't. You're stuck downtown. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. Take another road. You know, there was, you know, we driving down Second Avenue. Oh, there's a building there. What do I do? Well, put it in park, walk away. You know? <laughs> what do you do? And, and you know, you'd be surprised. You, you would be surprised to know that over the last three or four years when we've really begun to get serious about the fact that we are going to have a worship facility at another place in Marion, that some people have resisted that change. Are you surprised by that? I'm never surprised when people resist change. We're not necessarily change averse, but it does kind of throw us off. But on the other hand, there are some changes that we, we embrace. How many of you have been coming to this church for more than 30 years? Just raise your hand. Okay, now I know sometimes it gets a little bit away. You know, keep those hands up. We want you folks to be established here. You're pillars of the church. Those of, you that, those of you that have been here more than 30 years, do you, even though it gets away from us every once in a while, don't you appreciate the fact that it's air-conditioned? You know? I love that it's air-conditioned. I know it gets away from us every once in a while. I see my wife with gloves and a sweater on in the middle of July. But I used to hate it when I was a kid. First of all, you'd come in here, it was 358 degrees, and that was on the shady side of the sanctuary. Over here, it was like 400 Okay, and you would literally, of course, there was only about 85 people in here then because it was so hot at 7.45 or 8.30 in the morning, you would stick to the pews. The pastor would say, stand up for the hymn. You couldn't get up. <laughs> okay, 
So we like some changes. We, we embrace some changes. I love that I can do my laundry inside. You've embraced that change. And I remember in, in, in Colorado Springs, 25 years ago, when this restaurant opened literally across the street from our house. And I said, they'll never make it. It's a restaurant based on cold meat sandwiches. That's what I make in my kitchen. But guess what? Subway's everywhere. We embrace the change. You people are paying for subways. You've got to be. Quiznos, all those. Okay, so we've embraced those. I want to show you a couple pictures of a guy. Take a look at the, this first young guy. There's a picture of a young guy up here. See? Now, this was young Bill Cosby, dashing star of the I Spy TV show. He's even got a gun. That's good. Don't buy guns in the sanctuary. Okay. The Bill Cosby, you know, he's a star of a spy show. Young guy, dashing guy. And we love that young Bill Cosby. But guess what? He kept getting older. Look how he changed. Take a look at this next picture. Then he became America's dad in the Cosby show, right? It was, it's dispensing great, you know, family lessons and all that kind of stuff. And then show the next picture. And now Bill Cosby's become kind of a wisdom dispensing sage for certain populations in America. And you know what? We've appreciated the change in that man. We've appreciated what, what he's brought to it. And I'll tell you what, there's other change we appreciate even more. We appreciate the change of personal transformation. Well, if you have a friend, and I know some of you had a friend, or maybe you're that person yourself that's lost 40 or 50 pounds, you're so thrilled for a friend that makes that kind of a personal transformation. Or if you're, you have a friend or you're that person that's, that's crushed in addiction, you know, that you're addicted to, to, to some mental thing or some, you know, some physical thing or something like that, and you've crushed that addiction, you love the fact that that's changed in, in your life. And I'll tell you what, we all love the fact that there are people that were far from Christ and have had complete changes in their lives to be in Him completely and totally, spiritually in every other way. So we don't dislike change as much as we think. And that's why without apology, the collective we up here on the front are going to proclaim transformation. We're going to proclaim change as important to the mission of the church. Now, here's your first quiz. I'm going to say it again, then I'm going to ask you a question. We're going to proclaim transformation, which is change, as important to the mission of the church, which is, the mission of the church is, the, tra- the making of disciples, cool, most of you said that in English, it sounded really cool up here, you know, so thank you, but, and, and Christians, and I'm going to count you all as that, even if you're just seekers and trying to, to figure out your way, and if you're, if you're looking about what the faith's about, we're so glad that you're you're here. Christians need to affiliate with the transformational power of God, and here's why. In the last century, there was a German theologian named Paul Tillich. He, to me, gave me the easiest mental picture I can build for you about why we need to believe in the transformational power of God. Tillich wrote several thousand pages on this one concept. He says, there is in the world in which we live two worlds going on. There is the world of is, I-S. The world of what is. The way things are. And we know that that world is broken. It's self-absorbed. It falls short of the glory of God. It doesn't reach to the highest heights. And the world of is is that which we often feel trapped in, but we are not trapped in because from the place we stand, in the world of is, we can see the world of ought or ought to be. 
And the world of ought is the world where God is in his kingdom, and he calls us to him to say, you don't have to live that way. This is the way things ought to be. And there is a significant divide between the world of what is and the world of what ought to be. And it is that both are accessible to every person that ever lives in this life. You know, you see, the fact of the matter is this, that when we live in the is, our world wonders. We wonder, will tyrants ever rule? Will tyrants continue to bulldoze company, you know, you know, countries in, in, in South America and Africa and even in Europe and Asia? Will, will terrorists keep wrecking havoc, wreaking havoc unabated? I mean, we have prayer concerns from one of our own FUMC daughters that, that is over in Myanmar that, that, that's having terrorist bombs all the time. We're in constant prayer for Katie McNeil, who, who's, who's over there, who's, you know, the last bomb over there went off Thursday, you know. So, so in the world of is, will we, will we live in this world where terrorists will just keep wreaking havoc and, and fear un, unabated? Will poverty, will racism, will bullying, will violence keep multiplying? In the world of is, will so many be left, left at the end of things, feeling unloved, lonely, and desperate? Will in the end darkness prevail? The question in the world of is is simply this. Does it have to end like this? Does the world have to end like this. And you know what the transformational power of God says? No. And absolutely not. He says of himself in in Revelation 21, Behold, I make all things new. Do you know it's a part of all? Everything. Do you know what's left out of all? Nothing. Behold, he says, I make all things new. And the church says of him, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Which brings us to that passage that we looked at today of that interchange in Jericho. This is not a random teaching. Nor is the teaching of Zacchaeus' interchange with Jesus in Jericho a a, a story that was supposed to help us remember something that happened long ago. It, of course, points to a historical event, but it also points to where we are in our life. This is what we know about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he, right? That's what we know. And so he climbed up in a sycamore tree. Why? Because he was diminutive in his, in, in his size. That's not why he climbed up there. He didn't climb up there because he was small. That was the second cause of it. The first cause of his climbing, this very unprofessional, very undignified thing for a man of his position, he was a tax collector of the town, he climbed up because he wanted to see the newest thing. He wanted to see Jesus because he knew what the world of his is was. The world in which he was living, he knew he was completely self-absorbed. He knew he was completely broken. He knew he was lonely because he turned pretty much off everyone in Jericho because he'd been robbing from them for years and grafting and extorting them. And therefore, he was all alone in his world. So he climbed up in the tree. He was, of course, not tall in size, but he wanted to see Jesus. And in the midst of that, you know what Jesus does? He makes eye contact with the dude and says, get on down here. And he comes down and he says, I'm going to your house today. And you know what the church people said when he did that? Oh, he's going with sinners. He's going to go eat with the sinners. Well, here's the thing. Zacchaeus hadn't been transformed yet. He hadn't signed up to the saved life. He hadn't signed up to a holy life. He was doing what he wanted to do. He lived in the world of his. He never thought anything was any better than that. See, Christians, we have to remind ourselves, quit putting our standards on people that haven't received Christ yet. They didn't sign. I always hear that. So, well, I'm not as bad as those guys. Well, of course not. You've got Jesus. You've been transformed, right? 
Our behavior should be better than that. Well, our goal is, if our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for a transformation of the world, is to help people see that there's a better life to live. I digress. Let me go back to Zacchaeus. Sorry for that little rant there. I was having fun. When Zacchaeus comes down from that tree, or the reason that he was up in that tree, was that he was asking the same question we ask. He says, does it have to end like this? And what happens when he encounters Jesus is that he found out, no, it doesn't have to end like this. It absolutely doesn't have to end like this. In in Jesus, he saw what he ought to be. He saw that his sins could be forgiven. He saw that hope opened doors that had long been shut. Zacchaeus' experience is transformational, which is to say everything about him was changed. He was completely self-absorbed when he went up to that tree. He was looking for something, but he'd become a rich man from ripping off his friends and neighbors. Tax collectors were incredibly powerful people and incredibly hated by that. They bid out on a contract. In Zacchaeus' case, he bid on the contract to be the, the tax collector for Rome. They took the money. Rome took the money that he offered them. Then Zacchaeus became the tax collector of the town. He he you know, hired some thugs and villains to be those who actually would bring the taxes to him. And he became wealthy. Okay? That's what he was. Completely self-absorbed with his weight, with his wealth, and he was friendless. But you see, when he encountered Jesus, his life changed from what it was, what it is, to being what it ought to be. That life of self-absorption was, was turned away. And, and what, what he becomes is a servant of reconciliation and service. Zacchaeus, if you read the story, gave four times more than what he took from people. Guess what? In ancient Jewish law, the only responsibility, if you ripped somebody off and they figured it out, was for you to give 10% more than you took from them, 110% of what you took from someone. He gives 400% back the people because his life becomes one of a servant and he lives in the ought from thenceforward in God's desires. He's completely born into a new identity and he is centered on the sacred and his life begins and continues to bear fruit in the world. And I would say this, that this transformation is for each of us. And this transformation for each of us is the center of the Christian life. Of this scripture can be no clearer. We must all be transformed. The Apostle Paul uses an interesting phrase about transformation. He uses the phrase in Christ 165 times in his letters in the, in, in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, half of the New Testament is written by Paul. They're called letters, you know, Romans, Hebrews, that sort of thing, if you're flipping through there. And as shorthand, he uses this phrase, in Christ, to, to represent the fact that you were once in something else, which is usually yourself, and when you've been transformed, you're in Christ. So here's what he says. So if anyone is in Christ, there, pointing to a person, there is the new creation. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. So the conversion that Pastor Keith preached for and several of you received last week is fully complete and leads to transformation. It's fully completed and leads to the transformation of your soul. Because here's the thing. To be born again 
and Christians must be. To be born again means to die to the way things is. To die to your false self. To die to an identity that's centered on this world and the stuff you can get. To die to the prevailing opinion, it will probably end this way. So many times I've talked to to folks, even in the church, who say things will never change. And that is an anti-Christian sentiment. So you're aware. Because new life is possible. See, the new life is an identity centered on the Spirit and life the way it ought to be. We're transformed internally, externally, redefined, and our lives begin to bear fruit for the Lord. We live out the Great Commission, which is the making of disciples of all people. And we live out the Great Commandment, which is loving God and loving others. So let me loop back here as we come to the last couple minutes here, last few minutes. If the transforming power of God is the center of the Christian life, and I believe it is. If the transforming power of God is the center of the Christian life and we love it so much, hear me now, friends, and we love it so much, the fact that God can change us, can bring our friends into the kingdom of God, can we can have eternal life forever. If the transforming power of Jesus Christ is so important to us, why does the ecclesia, the church, struggle and even oppose transformation so much. Well, the reality is, I understand this, it's hard for groups to change. Pastor Keith, Vicki, and I, we hate jokes like this. You know, Methodists have been around a long time, so there's all these Methodist jokes going around in our circle. You ever, these are bad jokes, I'm going to tell them anyway. (laughs) And you will affirm at the end of them that they are indeed bad. You ever heard these ones? There's a couple different versions of this. How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? You'll never get changed. Methodists don't believe in change. Right? <laughs> or how many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, we're not really sure because first you've got to form a committee to decide whether the change is necessary. Or how many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Four. Two to hold the ladder. One to take out the light bulb, and one to complain how much better the old one was. <laughs> now, I, I don't like those kind of stories, but since they're out there, it's obviously part of our, our, our DNA. And I also know that when we change, I know how quickly something becomes part of our tradition almost immediately, and then we don't want to change it. Years ago, I went to a church called Webster City Asbury Church. When I, I was there, my second day, this is how wonderful things were going in the church. In my second day, I was the longest tenured staff. My second day. They'd had five staff the week before, and they were thinning them out. So things were going great at the church. <laughs> things were going great. Everybody was loving back up. No. That church was so dissonant, so divided. It became a very good church, but on the very first Sunday, to a, a sanctuary that was about a third this full, I said, now it's time for the Lord's Prayer. I'd like you all to stand up and hold hands as a sign of unity. Oh, my heaven stars. I think I'd have been ever easier just to say, everybody give me their ATM card. We're going to solve the problem. 
They're like, well, I don't know if I want to touch him. Or, you know, and they finally kind of you know, meandered up the aisles, and we kind of made a little group, and we said the Lord's Prayer, right? First week. Second week, they were a little bit more warm to the idea. Third week, the third week, the third week of July, in the very first month I'd been there, we did that in the service. And one of our young college girls that I was just getting to meet was there, and her boyfriend from Minnesota was there. And she said, I just love this church. And she says, I love the way we hold hands at the Lord's Prayer. And then she looked at him and said, and we've always done it that way. I was there the day we started. We hadn't always done it that way. But you see, it's something about us that we almost push change back so, so much that when we change, we just assume it right away and say it's always been that way. But I have to tell you that organizations sometimes have to change. And when the transforming power of Jesus Christ is at the center of your organization, you know that change might be afoot, not from time to time, but all the time. Now, we can still in our hearts say, I want to be kind of unconfused before we change, and I need to know a little bit more about it. But, but let me tell you, lots of big organizations change. I'm going I'm to give you a sequence through the years of a very large corporation that, that at first probably thought it was impossible to change. Let's take the, a look at this first picture. Okay, here's NBC. Now, I, I did research this week. If you look at this thing, that NBC logo, now this is back from the, the 30s and 40s. Where one side of the, and if you, if you know enough, a lot of engineers in here, if you know enough about this, one side represents TV waves and one side represents radio waves, okay? Because they wanted to reach both eras. Take, take a look at the next slide here. Okay, now, this came out, NBC was what? In living, in living color. Do you know why they were in living color? Because they owned a TV company that made color TVs. And so they came out with this huge peacock, the NBC peacock, and they kept saying they were in living color, the first television group to be in living color. Then later, when HDTV came out, look what their logo changed to. See, they cleaned up. They went from like 13 feathers in the, in the NBC logo to like six to make it really crisp. But then by the time this logo came out, they also realized that the TV landscape was changing. Everybody was getting cable or Hulu or Netflix or whatever. So they started adding to their repertoire, even though the NBC itself share began to, to slide a little bit. Look what they added next. They added NMS NBC, which was, um, depends who you are. It's either the best news ever or it stands for made-up news station. It doesn't, it, I don't know, you know. But they, they wanted to add to their market, sta- their, their market. And then look at what the next thing they did just recently. They added NBC Sports. Now, if a major corporation of fuddy-duddy rich people can change, how much easier should it be for the church of Jesus Christ that's based on, on, on being fluid and active, be able to change? See, to radiate the transformational power of Jesus Christ, to radiate the power of our everlasting God, our thinking about change must be transformational. Here's biblical note number one about church and transformation. From Romans it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Biblical note number two about the church and transformation. People are called, that's you and me, from the society of the is to be the full expression of Jesus Christ on earth, that is, to live the world of the out, the ought, out before other people. Biblical note number three about the church. Scripture never describes how the church is to be configured. All that is church can be transformed. 
And we have a responsibility in this generation to be the transformers. I remember going to a workshop years ago, 20 years ago, to a prophet. A prophet was leading us, talking to us about church and what was going to happen now. And he said, you know, you preachers have been doing the same thing for a long time. You might want to consider whether Sunday school is viable anymore. Can you imagine what happened in a group of Methodists when you say, Sunday school might not be viable anymore. You need to look at other alternatives. We were like, it's the golden cow. You know, but we know that we've been in the church long enough to say, should we sing hymns or should we sing praise music? Should we sing both? Maybe we need to consider not singing at all. All those things need to, to be on the table. We, we talk about, you know, the transformation. Are we have ordained pastors or not? Are we going to worship in Gothic cathedrals? Or are we going to worship in, in pole barns? Or are we going to worship outside? All of these things have happened in the United Methodist tradition and cannot, can happen again. And here's the bottom line. It doesn't seem that God cares. I've read the Scriptures. They've read the Scriptures. They know this to be true. A lot of you have read the Scriptures. It does not seem that God cares how we serve Him, the methods through which we serve Him, as long as He is our number one focus. As long as our focus is the purity of God and seeking the world of the way things ought to be, He does not care the methods and strategies and tactics we use. What we need to do is use methods, strategies, and tactics that will work to build the kingdom of God in the generation we are, whatever they are, and they have to transform some stuff that's been around. So here's our aim. I'd, I'd like you to pick out, I don't know what color that sheet is that you got that has the song transformed on it. I won't make you sing, but I, some of them are blue, some of them are purple. But look that out and let your eyes glance down to the third stanza and we'll get you headed towards the offering here. If you look at the third stanza, because this is what I think our life at First UMC is, to be about in reference to what we're speaking about today. That stanza starts with, we'll be your generation. Now, for as long as I've known life, and as long as I will know life, I have to ask the question as pastor, whether we'll be the generation or not. If it's not going to happen here, then where's it going to happen? If it's not going to happen now, then when's it going to happen? And if it's not going to happen through us, then who is it going to be that reaches out to Marion and changes the landscape? It goes down and says, we leave our selfishness behind. One of the biggest problems and the reasons that we like change so little in the church is that we prefer our preferences over God's purposes. Let me say that again. We prefer our preferences over God's purposes. We have to be willing in selflessness to let God's purposes prevail over our preferences. It goes on to say, we'll serve as your hands and feet, which simply means we have to give all in uh, to God's work so that everything and everyone might be transformed by God's strong hand and our allegiance to him. And this is the key to looping back to where we stand. The world in which we live will not end this way because we're here and we have intention. We have will and we have inclination to transform it for God's sake. Our aim is pretty simple, that God's ought that God's ought to be, becomes what is on earth. We already prayed it. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so in advance, in expectation of that day, let's join together and pray. Lord our God, we thank you for the scriptures and stories that we can understand, like the interchange between Zacchaeus and Jesus in Jericho. We thank you, Lord, that through the story of that one man's 
transformation, we can understand how our lives, the system of our church, the very essence of who we are might be transformed for your glory because we know this for sure, Lord. That day when Zacchaeus came down from the tree and he uh, dined with you at supper at his own home, his life was many, many times better when he climbed down the tree than when he was climbing up it. Lord, let us be those that climb down the tree and put our hands and feet and hearts to work for you for the transformation of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Hi, my name is Matt Wildman. Since moving to Marion and joining the church over five years ago, our family has gotten involved in several of the church's ministries. With four young children, the youth ministry is especially important to us. Our children enjoy and look forward to the various activities that take place at the church every week. We are happy to give to a church with such a strong youth ministry. I hope you will join us.